Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 208, The Call from the East, with Peter Frankopan. In our last two episodes, we've asked what the Emperor and the Pope really wanted in the lead-up to the First Crusade, and our guide through the maze of sources has very much been Professor Peter Frankopan. In his book, The First Crusade, The Call from the East, he puts the motives of both men front and centre in his account of what happened. And today you'll hear him make his case for why Byzantium should be much more prominent in histories of the First Crusade than it usually is. In the interview, I also ask him about what each man was expecting to happen once the crusade was called. Was Alexius surprised by the huge numbers who volunteered? And did Urban really believe that the crusade would succeed? Peter Frankopan is Professor of Global History at Oxford University and Stavros Niarchos Foundation Director of the Oxford Centre for Byzantine Research. He specialises in the history of the Byzantine Empire, Russia, the Middle East, Central Asia and China. He translated the Alexiad for Penguin Classics in 2009 and wrote The First Crusade, The Call from the East, in 2012, which I obviously highly recommend. Since then, he's written two award-winning books about the Silk Roads, tracing their impact on world history as well as contemporary events. Find out more about his work at peterfrancopan.com. Before we begin, I should just mention one other thing. A couple of episodes ago, I talked about how many of the leaders of the First Crusade were quite familiar with Byzantium thanks to the tradition of pilgrimage in their family networks. Well, one Crusade leader I didn't mention was Bohemond, son of Robert Giscard. Yes, that's the Bohemond, last seen fleeing the Balkans after Alexius finally got the better of him. A decade after that nasty war, Bohemond would sign up to lead a contingent east, and needless to say, confrontations between the two men will be a major plot point going forward. Now, here's the interview. Professor Frankopan, welcome to the History of Byzantium. Hi there, thank you for tracking me down and having me. Uh, it's a huge pleasure. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is uh, uh, the work you did, particularly that culminated in your book, The First Crusade, The Call from the East. 
and part of your goal uh, in writing that was to put Byzantium back into narratives of the First Crusade. Can you tell the listeners a bit about why Byzantium has been written out of so many crusading histories? Well, I guess the real question is, why has Byzantium been written out of so many histories? I mean, in a way, the the Crusades is such a sort of touch point for uh, medieval historians, which effectively means Western European medieval historians, uh, that that's the kind of natural natural focal focal point. But I mean, as a as a Byzantinist, I spent I mean, I've been at my college in Oxford now for 25 years as a fellow there that I've had um, you know, these conversations for for best part of three decades now about where does Byzantium fit within the story of of well not just global history but also specifically European history. I mean the endless books written about the Crusades that don't mention Byzantium or Constantinople. You know there's only an intersection point is when the armies coming from the west stop in Constantinople. There's a sort of brief moment there, um, but that's that's mirrored in the way in which history is written about. Uh, across across Europe for for the whole period of well late antiquity I suppose or you know call it constant the 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 conversion of Constantine right up until the fall of Constantinople in 1453 you know you're you're you have to look quite hard to find Byzantium anywhere and I suppose there are three obvious reasons for that number one is that over the last three four hundred years the western part of Europe has been the dominant political and economic uh side of the continent and so as a result that's where primary focus has been uh based second well what comes with the political and economic uh strength comes um institutional support too for scholars to write and so by and large scholars are focused on those regions too because that's where the patronages come from Uh, but then the third reason i suppose is that the technical skills that you need to be able to make head or tail of this subject um, you know, are, are not necessarily easier to acquire for Western Europe, but Latin-based, relatively um, crudely written texts written in the Middle Ages are not that hard to read. Uh, being able to translate, understand texts like the Alexiad, uh, Byzantine texts written in the you know, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th century onwards uh, is obviously a lot harder. And here in this country, we've basically written away the process of teaching languages as a skill that, that graduate students and therefore scholars need. So to be an effective Byzantine historian, you know, you need to understand, you don't need to necessarily be able to read Syriac and Armenian, uh, Arabic, Hebrew and so on, but you need to be aware that there are sources in these languages that you need to be very, very careful with. And you need to try and understand the manuscript tradition, you need to understand the audience and the, the reception, you need to understand the way that they're written, the literary context and so on. And I think as a Byzantinist, you're, you're well-trained to be on your guard. And that, that requires a heavier load of, of research skills and, and so on. And so one of the reasons why Byzantium disappears is for the technical reasons. One, because the Western side of Europe is the dominant voice and therefore celebrates itself. And I suppose it's also because that Western side of Europe has always been interested in, in looking at itself in the mirror. So the Crusades are interesting and became interesting. It's no, no coincidence at a time when Europe was developing colonies around the world and European states were developing colonies. And so it's until relatively, until very recently, the way, the standard way in which the Crusades and the Crusader states were assessed from, from by European scholars was a sort of proto 
colonies, that these were Western interventions in new milieu and no attention paid at all to local and domestic settings. So it's it's absolutely right. Where's Byzantium in the Crusades? And the answer is it's left out altogether. Uh, but Byzantium is is shortchanged and deliberately shortchanged and has been for the last four or five hundred years. But the good news is that uh, as we are here today in, in 2020, uh, the Byzantine world is, uh, I wouldn't perhaps say it's uh, en vogue. You'll know about that as well, Robin, you know, that, that, that there are, um, you know, smaller audiences for what we do, but they are growing. And the, and the number of graduate students, the number of young early career researchers working on really cutting edge stuff in our field are, are growing every day, which is which is fantastic, obviously. But, you know, we're suffering from from people like Gibbon writing about the Byzantine Empire and making the word Byzantine synonymous with decadence, synonymous with with uh, smoke and mirrors, synonymous with, um, uh, you know, making the Byzantine world sound exotic and, and untrustworthy. And so perhaps it's no it's no no real coincidence that that scholarship has struggled to keep up with that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in a lot of um, crusade stories that the listeners will have heard, um, the papacy therefore takes center stage um and we, we're going to talk about alexius's role and the byzantine role in this uh more generally in a bit but let's let's start with where all the other crusading histories start with with the pope um we've talked a little bit on this podcast about the papal reform movement um this general sense of 11th century popes trying to rid the church of the influence and control of the secular world but could you tell the listeners just a little bit more about that movement and how it involves the papacy in military affairs? Well, I don't, I don't want to do myself out of a podcast, but I mean, it's complete from my perspective, it's completely irrelevant. You know, from, a, <laughs> from, from the perspective of Constantinople in the 11th century, zero attention, effectively zero attention is paid to what is going on between the Pope arguing with a bunch of other uh, prelates all over the rest of Europe. So medieval history, Western medieval historians, they make a big thing about the changes in the church. And it is a big thing from a perspective of Western Europe. It's a big thing from the perspective of the, uh, the, the changes in the early medieval church. It's important in terms of the function of the apparatus of the ecclesiastical hierarchy, uh, in terms of the bureaucracies. There are impacts into canon law and so on. But from my side of the uh, Mediterranean, or the Ionian Sea, southern Italy, it's totally meaningless. And it's a sort of artificial start point because crusade historians will typically, or Western medieval historians will typically use this as a start point to say, aha, well, the church starts to, ch to turn at this point and it leads up to a pope who starts to trigger the crusade movement. But that seems to me several leaps of faith almost literally, to be able to jump to that conclusion, because the Pope has significantly intervened in secular military affairs since the time, effectively, of St. Peter. You know, the, the idea that the church hasn't been trying to influence secular societies, to put pressure on leaders, to try to shape standards and norms in everyday life, as well as in high politics, you know, sort of it, it sort of overlooks a thousand years of what the church has actually been doing in not just in, in, in Byzantium and the Eastern Mediterranean, but but all over the Christian world, including, by the way, uh, what the church has been doing in, in Asia, highly active, highly involved in trying to control and regulate relationships with, with 
Sasanian shahs with pre-Islamic rulers of, of Persia and then then post-Islamic rulers of uh, of the of the Umayyad and then the Abbasid caliphate. So I think as a starting point, the question would be why why pay any attention to what it is that the that the papal reform movement and the arguments between uh, different popes in Rome, uh, particularly Gregory the Seventh and his sort of uh, you know attempts to outmaneuver and outbox, particularly Henry the Fourth in Germany. Number one, you'll find better people to talk about that than me, because it's not 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 something I'm uh, you know there are people much better than, than I'm to talk about that. But second, I just don't I don't understand why that would have any relevance for a Byzantinist, because if you look at the Byzantine sources, they don't even mention it, which would tell you maybe that it's much less important than than um, mainstream scholarship seems to think. Mm, very interesting. Uh, well, what about Urban II himself? Um, he ends up preaching the crusade, and a part of your book is putting his personal situation in, in its context in a way that isn't often mentioned. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the situation he was in from when he came to power up to when he called the crusade. Yes, I mean, I guess the the two most basic questions about the the what has become known as the first crusade. The two most basic questions are uh, number one, if the Pope and the knighthood of Europe were so predisposed towards, um, you know, recovering Jerusalem, why hadn't they done that before? And your listeners will know about Gregory the Seventh and his attempts to get things off the ground in the 1070s. And, you know, no one, no one tunes in. No one's interested. Uh, there are a couple of nice supportive letters, you know, basically emails coming and say, I'm really busy right now, but thanks for letting me know. Hmm. Um, and there's zero, um, there's no ability of the Pope to move the needle. And so one of the questions is, what is it about urban or about the mid 1090s that creates the kind of response that is um, unprecedented in Europe? So, we think, you know, the rough size of the Crusader forces or Western forces that move uh, towards Jerusalem is somewhere between 80 and 100,000, something of that magnitude. And that's at a time when you know, the Norman conquest of England is achieved with a force of maybe three or four thousand or, you know, whatever one wants to argue. But this is a this is a it's a complete it's a it's a totally out of proportion response. So one needs to work out how to explain that. I'll come back to Urban in a second. But the second most important question is that if Jerusalem really matters to Christians, why is it that there's a response then? Why now? And why haven't they done it before? And I suppose when I was a young undergraduate and I and I did a paper at university about Byzantium, to, to you know, when I did my first essay about this exact subject, and my assumption had been, well, I need to read about and, and, and gather a bit of information, knowledge, and to build up base knowledge. And I had just assumed that, you know, my shaky history from school, that, that Jerusalem must have fallen to um, the Muslim forces you know, just before the First Crusade, you know, the First Crusade, Urban calls for support in 1095. So must have been in, you know, 1094, 1093, just on the immediate um, immediate eve. And in fact, you know, as as I've known for 30 years, in fact, Jerusalem falls from Christian hands in the 630s, you know, which is 450 years earlier. So the idea that suddenly the Pope wakes up one day in Europe, light bulb comes on. He's never been able to move men before and is able to generate that kind of response, we need to think a little bit harder about it than to just put all chips, throw them on the table, go, Urban turns up in a field in Clermont, gives a quite an exciting speech, 
we've all been to church or to whichever your place of worship or to school assembly, whatever your equivalent wants to be, where the headmaster or the archbishop or the imam or the rabbi has said something that really moves you. We've all done that. But it's very rare that it's moved you, moved you enough to go home, sell your stuff, pack your things, leave your family and take your life in your hands. So something very specific is going on um, in the mid 1090s. As it happens, urban, far from being a kind of galvanizing force within the within the within the church uh in the mid 1090s rome uh, rome has a has a, a, a is so split that urban himself is not even inside the city he's not able to gain entry into the city himself his predecessor but one gregory the seventh is an enormously divisive figure within the church he's bullish he's demanding he's insisting on reforms and picks a fight not just with henry the fourth which who's the who's the the pri the prime um, uh, the, uh, the German emperor, he's the prime political figure, a military figure in northern and central and basically in, in, in Meridional Italy to northern part of Italy too. Uh, Gregory picks fights with everybody, including um, the Normans who become the dominant force in southern Italy at that time. And eventually Henry IV snaps and in 1080 appoints one of his trusted henchmen, uh, Wiebert of Ravenna, Archbishop of Ravenna, and brings him to Rome kicks the Pope out and appoints and crowns um, Webert as Clement III, as the Pope. And for all those lands in which Henry is recognized, which is the, 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 the lion's part of Europe, the Pope at that time is not Urban II, it's Clement III. And so Urban, a slightly sorry, sorry figure, he'd been uh, connected to the, to the great monastery at Cluny, the sort of intellectual uh, nuclear power station of Europe, well-connected, but politically, militarily, and in terms of networks, uh, is extremely weak, poorly connected, and facing a facing a, a bureaucratic rival, set up with the protection of the German emperor. So, Urban is uh, to to be able to explain how is he able to galvanize, how is Europe able to respond to his his call in in at Clermont above all. We need to work much much harder than the glib superficial texts all written about by by the western contemporaries or written in the in the late 1000s and early 12 uh, early 1100s that begin the story by saying pope urban found himself in a field in central france and gave an electric speech that galvanized europe which is where the guest of francorum where effectively raymond of agriere where fulcher of chartres where the story begins and that's really where the story begins for crusade historians of today too because they even they are unconvinced that that sounds quite right. They start the story, as I mentioned, with the kind of reform movement that somehow that's tacked onto the beginning. But to find the explanations and origins of the Crusades, not just we have to look harder, we need to look in a different location. And, and of course, won't surprise you and your listeners to know that's in, in, in the Byzantine Empire, number one, but also in the, contem in, in the Middle East and in the Holy Land itself. Mm hmm. Well, uh, absolutely. You, one of your, one of the main arguments of your book, as I understand it, is that the campaign would never have been called for by Urban unless the Byzantines were essentially lobbying him specifically to do so. Um, so, can you can you tell the listeners more about the messages coming from Constantinople and from Byzantium in general and this push for Western recruitment? Well, it, again, it breaks down into different different elements. So um, the calls for support from Alexius and from others have one category. Uh, the meltdown and collapse within 
uh, Byzantium is a separate one where the, the, the Byzantine state is entirely weakened. And then the third is the specific uh, changes in, in and around Jerusalem in the 1090s as well. And all of those can be can be separated and split out one by one. So um, if one starts with uh, what happens in the Holy Land itself, uh, pilgrimage has uh, since the time of uh, well, since the time of Jesus Christ has attracted um, uh, the faithful to want to come and see the places where Jesus Christ was was born and was crucified and rose from the dead and so on was was a hugely important part of of Christian faith. And in the ninth, 10th, 11th centuries, uh, large scale pilgrimage became perhaps not quite a, a sort of a tourist business, but it or a big business, but it became a, a, an important part of um, what it is that Christians did, particularly from Western Europe, to come to visit those locations. There was lower levels of, of Byzantine pilgrimage to Jerusalem, partly because many of the artifacts and great artifacts of Christianity were held in Constantinople. Uh, but Western Europeans, and particularly um, wealthy elites, aristocrats and so on, um, undertook long journeys to go and visit the sites and to then come back home and it gained considerable kudos. And as I think everybody knows, the, the, the act of devotion and a pilgrimage is an important part of, of just about every single faith. I don't know about how it works for Jedis, but Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Jews and Christians uh, going on journeys to again visit holy places and paying devotion and, and putting putting God first is, an, is a hugely important part of, uh, of the story of what it means to be faithful. And in the um, 1070s and 1080s, there is a change in um, in, the, in the Middle East, a contemporary what's what's now sort of Lebanon, uh, Israel, Palestine, Syria, uh, where the the advent of um, of Turks who've taken over um, rulership of the Caliphate in Baghdad start to push at the Fatimid Caliphate in what's in Fustat in, in Cairo in Egypt. And that leads to um, a shutdown of pilgrim traffic because it's harder. It's hard. It's hard to travel through um, uh, war zones. It leads to persecutions because one of the things that when there are wars is that one, there's a targeting of minorities. And from what we can tell from the material and of the evidence, it becomes life becomes difficult in the 1080s and 1090s for uh, not just people moving towards Jerusalem, but for people living there, too. There are there are. Um, whispers and snips of information that show that some local leaders uh, are, are more willing to compromise and deal with uh, Jews and Christians in particular, helping to rebuild churches and so on. But this becomes a very difficult time in the in 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 the Holy Land, and we see that from Sophronius, the, the patriarch of Jerusalem, sending out messages saying life is becoming very difficult. Uh, there is a kind of war going on between. Um, over-competitive or highly competitive, I should say, factions of Shia Muslims on the one hand and Sunnis on the other, which are uncompromising and for whom Jerusalem is also, of course, for Muslims, a very important uh, religious site, too. So the, the position in, in, in the Holy Land itself becomes increasingly difficult. And it looks like that that happens with a sharp up uptick uh, in, in the 1090s and, and not so much beforehand. There are a few bits and pieces that suggest that there are that there's economic and demographic pressure, but the 1090s seemed to, things seem to become decisively harder. From the perspective of the Byzantine Empire, the biggest challenge is that the, the, the main source for this period is the Alexiad of Anna Komnini. And uh, because we don't read that text well, because um, we don't read it in its entirety, because we don't ask the right questions about 
how and when it was written, what its audience was. There's an assumption that it's uh, there's, a, there's always been an assumption that it's a work of history, that it's a narrative history rather than um, a work of literature. And that means that that basic questions about its narrative structure uh, are not even asked. So there's an assumption that chapter one leads to chapter two, leads to chapter three, leads to chapter four. And it's all it's all happening in sequence. And, and often people point out the contradictions and the problems. But, you know, in the words of Gibbon, uh, this is a work written by a woman, therefore can't be trusted. Or, or by the way, that's what Jonathan Riley Smith, the, probably the greatest of modern crusade historians, also said. He said, this is written by an old woman living in a convent. What does she know? Even though, of course, as an aside, all the monks who wrote about the first crusade were all men living in monasteries thousands of miles away where Anna had access to imperial archives. She, we know, was alive and living in Constantinople at the time. She was an eyewitness to many of the events and met, and met many of the protagonists, certainly on the Byzantine side, maybe on, maybe on others, too. But uh, so the biggest challenge with that is that Anna has a very strong vested interest to show that the Byzantine Empire is on fire by the time her father takes the throne in 1081. And what's clear, both by um, unpicking the chronological structure of the Alexiad, and there are many other sources too written in that period, you know, from monks' lives, from uh, imperial charters and so on that we can gather together, but also looking at the numismatic, the coin evidence, and the evidence of, of from sigillography, from, from lead seals, we can build up a picture that's extremely compelling and widespread that shows that the, the Byzantine Empire, in fact, despite the kind of the truism that Manzikert sounds the death knell, actually is in pretty good shape, well, long into the 1080s. And the crisis point really starts to happen around about the spring of 1090, where first there's a massive migration of Pechenegs technomads deep into Thrace. It's been an ongoing challenge for a while. And second, the deals that Alexis has cut in Asia Minor to try to keep the situation stable with larger numbers of Turkish uh, settlers and raiders in the subcontinent, those deals that Alexis has struck with strongmen leaders start to go wrong for various reasons. Uh, Suleiman um, of Nicaea dies and his replacement is less willing to cooperate, at least to start with. Uh, individual cities start to uh, have um, overlords or potentates like Chakas or Chaka in, in Smyrna, or, um, who uh, see that there is uh, opportunity in the kind of paralysis to make a name and to make money and to make profits for yourselves. And the, the, the sudden collapse in Byzantium really happens even after the Pechenegs are defeated post in, 10, in 1091, where over the course of the next two to three years, uh, military problems on the frontier with Serbia, uh, replacement of the Pechenegs with new step nomad threats by the by the Cumans, who are you know similar similar sort of problem to the Pechenegs, and a, and a rapidly deteriorating situation in Asia Minor, which, which really does bring Turks into control of major cities, or at least leave cities isolated from the and disconnected from their own hinterland. Suddenly means that the pressures facing the emperor are acute, and in the winter of 1094. Uh, winter 1094 1095 campaign season, Alexius is faced with a uh, revolt led by um, his own his own relatives, uh, including his uh, at least one of his brothers, uh, at least one of his brothers-in-law, and and the the high command of the imperial army. And that's not just about Alexius' personality. That's a that's effectively a vote of no confidence that. Um, the situation in Byzantium is becoming absolutely catastrophic. And suddenly the big challenge that Constantinople has is 
multiple threats at the same time. And with Asia Minor, with the Northwestern Balkans and the Serbs, the Northeastern Balkans with steppe nomads, uh, suddenly um, the collapse on, of Constantinople uh, from a political and economic, large numbers of migrants and refugees coming to the city, uh, there's a demand for a replacement of the emperor, which leads to a, a, a very dramatic set piece where Alexis in the imperial tent on campaign has to line up his Varangian guard, the, the Scandinavians, Anglo-Saxons and, and, Rus and Rus soldiers who have double-headed axe. They surround him in a phalanx. He appears in front of the, uh, the army or at least the officers, not dressed as an emperor, but in military uniform. Alexis had been a general before he became emperor. His whole reason why he, he took power was to stem the, stem the tide. Um, and Alexis faces them down in a moment of profound tension. And when you read the text of the Alexiad, you, that's captured incredibly effectively by Anna, where it's absolutely touch and go about whether Alexis will be torn apart there and then, or whether he can um, stare, stare down the challenge. And it seems to me that the, the, the biggest problem that Alexius has is that in Asia Minor, at least, uh, possession by the Turks of well-defended cities is the key problem. And the problem above all is on the city of Nicaea, which is the sort of the gateway into Asia Minor. It's, south, it's modern Iznik, south of the Bosphorus, but it's the first real major city, apart from Nicomedia, it's the first real city that you reach that controls access to the coastal strip, which is the rich, fertile valleys, as well as, the co as, well as shipping, of course, and also controls the routes into the interior uh, that ultimately lead as far as Antioch. And the, the problem with that is that uh, Alexis has quite a well-worn well, well and weary army that, that is not ineffective against Serbs and Pechenos, Cumans, if they're well-led and so on. But it's a very different story taking on a really large, um, well-fortified city. And Alexis, from his dealings with the Normans in the 1080s, personally, and also is well-known in, in, in Byzantium, that the Westerners and the Latins, or the Franks as they're called, are extremely effective at, at both castle building, but also in in uh, setting sieges against big targets. So the, 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 the key for Alexius, for his personal survival and for the survival of the empire, is the recovery in the first instance of Nicaea, and then ideally also Antioch, which is the kind of the plug to the Byzantine um, underbelly in what's now Syria and in, in Eastern Asia Minor, um, and the way in which Alexius then sets about trying to gather support is through multiple different ways of sending out appeals to individual leaders in Western Europe, some of whom he's dealt with before, uh, and also uh, an approach to the Pope where envoys reach him in Piacenza in March 1095. Now, those appeals are relatively um, disjointed in terms of building the picture together. You have to work quite hard to find individual sources. One would expect, you know, not unreasonably, Western medievalists will ask, well, where is the, the where, where are the, where are the, um, where's all the evidence? You know, what if it's so obvious, then where are the triggers? Why do you have to look so hard for them? And there are, there are three very good reasons for that. Number one, the crusade becomes an enormous success from a crusader point of view and from a papal point of view with the capture of Jerusalem in 1099. And of course, at that point, it becomes quite useful to give credit to the people who've led it above all the crusade leaders and, 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 and to the Pope. So finding a Western European origin is, is key. Second, and combined with that, uh, there's a fallout during the crusade, a spectacular bust up 
where it becomes clear to the Crusaders in Antioch in 1098, after a very long siege that's cost a lot of lives and so on, it becomes clear to the Crusaders that they now need to make decisions on the hoof about what is going to happen if and when they get to Jerusalem and who shall be in control of these cities, including Antioch. And for all sorts of reasons that maybe we'll talk about, uh, the, Byzant the, the, the Byzantine well gets poisoned. And uh, pushing Byzantium out of the picture is part of that process that ultimately leads to the denigration of Byzantium for the next millennium, which is why we started the podcast talking about where is Byzantium in the story of the Crusades and in the story of the Middle Ages. It's because Byzantium is a very inconvenient truth in the story of where this all triggered from. So Byzantium has to get written out. And the third thing is that, well, you know, we have very little information from any of these sources both in Byzantium and from the West, that prevent, pre pre present a compelling picture about why is it that 80, 90, 100,000 men head eastwards. And one has to, I think, use one's common sense, as well as these uh, the, 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 the snips of information of Alexius sending relics, of uh, directly sending appeals, the most famous of which is a, is a letter to uh, Robert of Flanders that is dismissed routinely as a forgery, but would seem to have some kind of basis in the um, com communication and, and the understanding there is regular communication between Constantinople and leaders like Robert of Flanders that we know Alexis met personally uh, when Robert came back from pilgrimage in the 1080s, that there is an assumption that there are that there are high level contacts going on and that there's a need to fabricate or to distort information and appeals for help in somebody's interest. And, and we, there's a long discussion among scholars about what exactly that letter shows. Uh, at its very least, it shows that there's a, a need to um, dismiss the Byzantines as a factor in the Crusades. And that seems to me extremely significant, that, that, that the, the negative evidence of, of pushing people out of the story, as that letter tries to do or seems to try to do, I, I take a dip, slightly different view on it, by the way. This letter is written in, in the beginning of the 1100s. It would seem to show that there is a competition for control of the narrative of the crusade. And in that one, there's an awareness in Western Europe that Byzantium is a very complicated strand that needs to be uh, needs to be darkened and it, it needs to be dismissed. And that seems to be a consistent story that goes through other accounts by Gilbert Nogent, by Baldrick Adol, by all the other crusade historians writing in the early 1100s of how do you repackage the story to move away from its um proper origins. And, and those proper origins, the only explanation for why the West rises after 450 years, why suddenly so many men travel eastwards, etc., all lie in the fundamental truth that the Byzantine Empire and the Holy Land are on their knees and that the level of stress, the level of anxiety, the level of collapse are, is so acute and so high that people in Western Europe know that this is true. They know that the, that the calls from the East from Alexius, from churchmen, from clerics and so on, they know that this is not something that is being puffed up uh, and it's a PR stunt, which which was the case when Gregory VII tried the same sort of thing in the 1070s, where he tried to get men to go eastwards. People didn't respond, not because the Pope hadn't reformed, not because uh, they were too busy. It's because there was an awareness that actually the situation wasn't all that bad, whereas in 1095, it really is uh, catastrophic. And we see that also from the Byzantine side, in fact, the fact that the, the attempt to murder Alexius by his own involving, at least involving his own family, possibly even engineered by his own family, show that um, this really is a crisis and it's not just about his personality. Fantastic. Well, 
uh, that's the kind of argument I, I wanted the listeners to hear. And we could, of course, go on and discuss all sorts of interesting things uh, beyond the calling of the crusade. But that's where we've reached in our podcast. So I'm going to end with two more questions just about the calling. And we may be we may well be in the realm of speculation. But since I have you on the phone, I, I feel I have to ask. Obviously, a big debate um, is what size of army did Urban think he was going to recruit? What size of army did Alexius really want? And did, do you get a sense from the sources of whether Alexius, you know, did ever imagine he'd have, you know, such a large army coming? Was would he have been pleased with that, or was he always imagining something much smaller? Uh, I think I, I think it's a it's a really good question. I think what what matters to Alexius is is the quality, rather than as as much the number. And I don't mean quality as in are you a fighter, or are you part of the rabble that comes with uh, Peter the Hermit or Peter the Cuckoo. Um, what Alexius needs are people who can who can take down fortified locations. And that seems to be um, well. When, when the when that that seems to be the crux, and that seems to be the crux that Urban, first of all, keeps saying on on his various uh, travels around Europe. He really puts his back into it because, from from Urban's point of view, uh, there is the prospect of not just establishing himself as the the main leader of the church in Europe at the expense of Clement the Third, but also, of course, of being presenting a, a single united Christian world of the Byzantines to post 1054 when there'd been the, the 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 big fallout between the east and western churches what urban as he travels around europe and and travels around france i should say in italy um and sends letters left right and center what he keeps saying is that this is not something for the uh, weak-minded or people who can pick up a sword this is for people who have got specific technical skills and who are able to um to actually deliver military success and when the first wave of crusaders reach Constantinople, which are led by Peter the Hermit, it's a sort of ramshackle band of, um, you know, uh, fantasists, nutters, um, you know, men with pitchforks, children, etc. The shock that, that reaches in Byzantium is, is obvious. And Anna Comnena writes about this, saying, you know, they're, they're sort of a bunch of clowns who all arrive. And the emperor wasn't expecting, um, you know, he was expecting armed forces. And it's, it's, no, it's no coincidence, I think, that the first thing that happens when the Crusaders reach Constantinople, and there's real anxiety, by the way, as each army in turn arrives, the big the big armies led by uh, Godfrey of Bouillon, by Bermond, um, by Raymond of Toulouse, and so on, is that and Robert of Normandy, Robert of Flanders, is is to keep them out of Constantinople and keep them away from the city because the threats to the emperor's life are still acute. But it's no coincidence that the first target is 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 Nicaea, that they're all put right next to Nicaea where a little fort has been built or a little camp has been built ready for there to host them. And the target then with Nicaea and what Anna, again, I think faithfully captures, she says Alexius couldn't believe that when these guys arrived, the first thing they started to do was build siege engines and start to work out how to tackle the walls. And the assumption was that the, the, from the Byzantine way, how you how you strangle a big city is you, you surround it, you cut it off. Um, and I think that they are amazed that that many people um, arrive and are able to storm the city. I think that's a real, um, a real eye opener for the Byzantines. So, do they expect a large number? I think that there is, uh, there's, there's a obviously there is a, a pressure uh, to get to get lots of men. I think that's clear from the amount of effort that Urban puts in. 
none of the crusaders with the size of the armies, none of them, none of the accounts complain about lack of provisioning on their way to Constantinople at the imperial capital or afterwards. And as you, as your listeners may know, they all crusaders complain about that on every single other later expedition to Jerusalem. So that tells me that there is there is sufficient food and there is sufficient um, infrastructure in place to enable the, the transit of 80 to 100,000 people through Byzantine territory, which is quite something, particularly through a stressed empire. So there has been planning uh, to anticipate these numbers. It's it's no surprise, I think, that although Urban um, calls the, the Council of Clermont and starts putting his elbows into it in November 1095, there is a kind of a, official start point in August 1096 when armies start to get moving. Those armies don't all move at the same time, which suggests that there's coordination uh, they all reach Byzantium at different moments and at different entry points, which suggests, again, there's coordination. And like I said, there is um, no, no complaints about provisioning. Occasionally, the Crusaders go haywire and, and sack and attack and, and attack people. The Burman's lot burn a couple of castles when they go off, off piste. But that level of organization suggests that the Byzantines are not only expecting, but able to deal with those large numbers. And that seems to me extremely significant. In terms of um, the the question of of uh, how do you calculate how many you need, I think that 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 I've, I've got no idea how one even asks about it. But the logistical preparations are what really are significant, I think, here. Mm, absolutely. absolutely. Well, this is not really, you know, a, a topic covered in your book, but it just kept coming up in my mind, and scholars don't seem to address it. So, final question, and again, pure speculation, but do you think Urban expected the crusade to capture Jerusalem because it's not clear to me whether he really understood the logistics that they were going to have to overcome. And I just don't know if he thought, well, even if this fails, I'm happy because they've responded to my call. Or if he really thought, no, no, this will succeed. I'm I'm confident and I have some sense of what's needed to succeed. Uh, great question, Robin. And uh, the truth is, I, I don't know. I think what happens in, in Antioch in 1098 is the key here because it, it suddenly starts to dawn on the sort of the, the big shots in the crusade that there isn't a plan and the, the the truth is is that we can use modern parallels to understand how these big initiatives can be put into place without a big plan so you know when when u.s forces went into iraq in 2003 you know there, there no thought had been given through to in what way would the withdrawal happen what former government would take over uh, and when uh, what kind of support with us troops the military and poli- you know and, and the political establishment provide and suddenly you're left with having to deal with policy on the hoof and i think that's a very good parallel in fact for what happens in the case of the crusades that the excitement the specific military targets because you know after nicaea uh, the Crusaders are shuttled on to Antioch. They're not. They don't stop anywhere else. There's no. There's no need for them to uh, uh, to put pressure on any other city. The the big targets are the ones that that the Crusaders are most effective about uh, against. And in Antioch, it becomes, I think, a different story where the Crusaders suddenly start to realise that does this mean that some of them are going to have to stay there? Are there opportunities for people thinking on their feet like Bermond? Uh, of is there a chance to carve out your own space? Is there some form of imperial service or imperial overlordship where you can rule a city or territory, perhaps with the kind of blessing of the emperor in the, in the way that the Byzantines have done quite well in southern Italy for centuries beforehand? You know, are there patronage networks that might emerge? 
and I think it's it's a story that starts to redevelop. But I think that that we shouldn't necessarily think that all the right questions have been asked because our own personal experience in the last couple of decades shows quite often that that doesn't happen. Trillions of dollars spent in interventions in the Middle East without thinking about the end game or, or who needs to stay behind or how do things get done. And I suspect in the case of the First Crusade, it's it's something similar. I mean, what's clear from the charter evidence in Western Europe is that all of these knights, uh, they, 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 they are heading off east to get to Jerusalem. So fighting in Nicaea or Antioch, you know, it's it's all a byproduct. The fact that they the fact that they do storm Nicaea and submit subject Antioch to a siege of eight, nine months says a lot, I think, about the structure of the crusade and who's really in control. And uh, until that point, until Antioch falls, the Byzantines are the ones calling the shots. After that, and the heading to Jerusalem and figuring that it's not enough to just capture it. Perhaps people need to stay there. Perhaps, uh, you know, supplies need to be thought about, perhaps infrastructure, perhaps appointments, perhaps a bureaucracy. That all seems to develop and emerge on the hoof rather than be thought about in advance. Fantastic. A great analogy to modern modern times. Um, I think we'll we'll have to let you go there, but I obviously strongly recommend anyone interested in the Crusades check out The Call from the East. Uh, Professor Frankopan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Absolute pleasure, Robin. And I hope I hope one day you'll have me back to talk about something else too. That would be fantastic. Fantastic. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.